Hi, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Flaming Pinto Channel's Play Me Tape podcast. My name is Jake. I am here with Darren. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the concept of Play Me Tape? It was an experience you had in England where a young fellow who felt he had a fantastic mixtape approached you to play his tape, came running at you and said these words. Play me tape. Though you weren't there to hear it, uh, that was a surprisingly spot on impression <laughs> of that dude. And I really wish I remember his name. But yeah, we did a weekly bus trip to hockey practice. And this kid, this unfortunate, anally retentive kid with his typed out track listings, would bring these cassettes, kids, if you need to ask your parents, these audio tapes of song mixes. And he would insist on playing his song mixes. And there was nothing spectacular or terrible about them. They were fine. He just was very excited about these tapes and uh, wanted to hear them them played. But the the point of this podcast is the desire to look back at songs that were meaningful to us, maybe at some point in our lives or because they resonate with us in a, in a specific way. Um, Maybe it's the songwriting. Uh, maybe it's the time in our life uh, that there was an emotional connection with the lyrics or with um, a time and place. Uh, and the idea is to bring these songs forward and play them for people. And hopefully they'll get as much out of it as we did or not at all. Uh, we might find that these songs do not hold up. And that's okay, too. Uh, I've done this very often recently, uh, and I, I know you have too. Yeah. Uh, songs that you either burn out on or songs that just don't have the emotional meaning that once they did, and that's okay. Uh, so why don't you give us a quick intro to, to you, to yourself. What did you grow up listening to? What's your wheelhouse, and what song have you picked? So... I mean, as far as growing up listening to music, uh, I had an older brother, seven years older, and so I was exposed to, to classic rock, and I, I guess at the time it wasn't really even classic rock, it was just rock, and I fell in love with it, and so at that age, it was quite rare for somebody to be listening to that type of music, and I would go to school dances and be very disappointed. And I was listening to the local rock radio station instead of the local pop hits radio stations that all my friends were. You know, I, I got exposed to this stuff really, really early on and, and loved it and still love it to this day. Uh, like you said, there's many songs that don't hold up well and that I've burnt out on. But for the most part, uh, as I've gotten older, I've become more of a fan. And so the song that I chose for today is probably my favorite song in the whole world. I listen to it. I, I think for the, the entire 2019 year, I listened to it almost at least two to three times a week, which probably sounds crazy, but it just, it's just one of those songs that... No, uh, a favorite song is a favorite song. Yeah. I, I get it. I never really got enough of it. So the song itself is uh, Subdivisions by the Canadian prog rock power trio Rush. It's a great song. I agree. I think it's a brilliant song. And, and why don't we give it a listen and, and then we can discuss it after. Awesome.
So that was Subdivisions by Rush. A uh, little bit of just info on the song. It was the number one song on their 1982 release, Signals. And Signals was the first studio album after the incredibly successful Moving Pictures album. They did do a live album in between that, Exit Stage Left, which was also a uh, hugely successful album. But Signals was very much a departure for them. And Subdivisions is really interesting because it was actually the first Rush song that was written with keyboards as the main instrument. And this was a real change of direction for them coming out of the 70s and, and even into the early 80s with the Moving Pictures album. They were still very much a drums and guitar band. So the fact that they kind of recognized the direction of music and started integrated into their songs was a huge leap and it left some fans behind, but it also gained, they gained new fans with it. I'm certainly one of them. I love the synth heavy era of Rush. And so it really, really, I mean, even to this day, it, it certainly, uh, the music part of it certainly still keeps uh, me interested. They weren't as vocal prior about synth being a negative influence, were they? I, I want to liken them to, was it Judas Priest or was it Maiden? Who was really vocal about no synth, no synth ever, until yeah. they used it. And I don't remember <laughs> which it was, but... You know, you catch a lot of flack for that, or or Kiss, uh, for that matter, who got so much flack for being a rock band and producing a, a track that was more or less referred to as a disco track, I Was Made For Loving You. Definitely. Um, they got a lot of abuse for that, and it wasn't even popular within the band. Uh, but they never had that as a... They were always an exploratory band, so they, they didn't have an anti-synth... Not at all. In the I mean, opening. When you, when you think about, you know, some of their previous songs, while they weren't necessarily keyboard-centric, I mean, they're one of their greatest rock anthems is Tom Sawyer. Yeah. And there's quite a few, you know, synth moments in, in those songs. That whole, the that entire, whole song. The entire intro uh, to Tom Sawyer, with, it crashes in with a, right. that synth chord that, that opens up the song with the drum beat. So this was something that they, they, Rush was always excellent at pushing the envelope in terms of coming up with, with new things and new techniques and new ways. And very often it was, you know, it made them sound a lot bigger than they really were. Three so piece, yeah, yeah, to me, it sounds like there's 10 guys on stage and that, that just lends itself to just how talented they are as musicians and, and Getty being able to sing and play bass and keyboards at the same time is pretty spectacular. The reason, you know, why I chose this song is, and we talk about emotional response, is it kind of goes hand in hand with the video, but the song itself, obviously, it's conform or be cast out. Yeah. And, and growing up and going to high school in, you know, a subdivision, you're forced to do one or the other. If you don't toe the line and, and kind of be one of the cool kids, then God forbid, you're, you're getting pushed aside and, and being cast out. Yeah, and, I mean, it, it really leverages subdivisions as, a, as an entity hard in terms of as a metaphor for conformity and for that patterned regularity. Everything is the same, complete homogeneity. Uh, it just, everything is the same. It's always the same. The, the opening lines when it talks about the geometric order yeah. of the subdivision. Yeah, and it, it really paints the picture for you. And again, the picture, according to the song, seems very bleak. Yeah. You know, it's not a happy thing. <laughs> and, and it's really interesting for me and why I think this song is still just so important is 
as I've gotten older and grown up living in, in subdivisions and even watching my kids grow up, you recognize, you know, what they were talking about in the song and difficulties. And it's, it's still, it gives me goosebumps when I listen to it because it just resonates with me at, at such an incredible level. Yeah. So, yeah, I, it's funny too, because it's a song that I remember the first time I heard it, uh, it was actually at a show. It was at a rush show at Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. And I don't remember any other song from that night. It was the, the Presto tour. Wow. I remember when that song came on and they started playing it and they actually, uh, when they say subdivisions in the song, in the studio recording, that was actually Neil Peart's voice that was produced and modified and changed to, to I, sound that way. Really? Because in the video, it's in, clearly Alex stepping to the mic and singing the subdivisions part. Correct. And even in concert, they actually would pipe in the subdivisions part of the song. And okay, Alex, so that was canned. That yeah, was a canned it was, exactly. And Alex sample. would be the one mouthing it while that was happening. And it's really funny because if you go and do some research on the song on the internet, one of the myths that surrounds that song is the fact that there was a local news anchor on a popular station here called City TV, and he had a super deep voice. His name was Mark Daly. And right, for the longest time, people were saying that that was Mark Daly that was saying subdivisions in the song. And it's completely untrue, but it's a super, super cool myth. So it was really fun to sort of read that. I think that song, even today, is just so impactful. And it could be released as a single today. And I, I still think it would have the same impact it did in 1982. Well, certainly there's been that resurgence of synth in alternative music that you've seen. I don't know if it's a trend that's continuing, but it was so hot for uh, two or three years where you've got that, just that resurgence of that sound. And it's such a great sound. And it's such a great sound. Do you think on any level the song is, I mean, it's clearly an indictment of conformity. Do you think it's an indictment of subdivisions in general? I absolutely do. You do? I mean, I, I look at it from, okay, so Neil Peart, uh, Russia's drummer wrote the song. He's been very vocal about his struggles socially and dealing with fame and dealing with fans and things like that, but also in conforming and following along. You know, there's a funny story that the record company, after Russia's third album, Caress of Steel, tanked, they sat the guys down and the record company said, you know, enough of this, this exploratory stuff. We need you to sound more like bad company. Yeah. Give us more Zeppelin sound. Yeah. And they responded with the album 2112, which, which could was, not have sounded less like... Which was not filled company. with radio-friendly hits. Yeah. <laughs> no, but became a massive success for them. Yeah. So I do think that, yeah, it's definitely an indictment on all that. And also, Neil is known for traveling heavily. He rides a motorcycle in between shows. Um, he, he loved to live life and, and not kind of fall into those, like they say, the losing the race to rats and falling into those ticking traps. It's how he lived his life. And I really like that. I think that's amazing. And even back then, you know, he was a much younger man. He saw it. And I kind of look back and, <laughs> you know, I kind of, I envy him and envy their lives. Granted, I live in a beautiful subdivision. So right. I'm, I'm happy about that. So it's such a, a neat commentary on our lives. Yeah. Uh, and the video specifically, the, the video is so of its era and i don't i don't mean that negatively and you you very often hear people refer to something that is dated and looks very much of the date 
from when it was produced. Uh, and I don't mean that to, to sound negative. I, sure, the, the overall fashions and aesthetics are, are very different and very much of their time. But it's, it's an, a really, really interesting time capsule. It's, um, it's high school. It's Young Street. It's uh, so many things that you and I know that you're seeing through this lens so many years later. Uh, and so that's really interesting to me. But again, as you say, the song and the video are both presented in a way that's, I, I think, bleak. And I think it's intentionally bleak. And one of the ways that I think it's obvious that it's intentionally bleak is when you look at it scene by scene, uh, there's a bit of a narrative with the boy, the, the teenage boy in high school that doesn't fit in with the, the cool crowd and that spends his time by himself and he spends his time in the arcade. There's that there, there's a fair amount of shooting that's done outdoors. Whether this was simply a quirk of the production of when the video was made, there is not a lot of sunlight in that video. It's always gray. It's very bleak, yes. It's always gray. It's an excellent there's, observation. They do not show the sun. They do not show a sunny day. If it's not nighttime, it's an overcast gray day. The kids, the cool kids get into a convertible at some point. The top is down, but it's an utterly gray day. Yeah. Or that's just, again, or that's just a quirk of the video on which it was captured. I don't know. It's clearly taped on video. It's not on film. It's clearly taped on video. But it, it just, yeah, overwhelmingly, it seems bleak. Yeah, it, and it very much is. And interestingly enough, uh, you know, I found out about the the guy who was featured in the video. His, his name is Dave Glover. And he went to that school. The school was Lamoureux Collegiate in Toronto is actually a French high school. He has commented, you know, after that, that that was literally his life. You know, he oh was, my God. He, he was, was not an actor. Out. He was not, he was an, not actor. an actor. He was a student. And, and that's the way he was being treated at they, school. How did they come to choose him? How did they find the kid who was the outcast? I, to, I don't know. <laughs> to, <laughs> you know, to, to document his experience. Yeah. Uh, this, not just a generic experience that many have had, but his specific actual experience. That's unbelievable. I didn't know that. He also has remarked that he was really disappointed because he went through all of this and he never even got to meet the band. So it sort of, you know, he's looking at himself in this very bleak video and that's really detailing his life. He thought, well, at least I could have gotten to meet the band. At least there would have been something from this. But he's a guy that is still kind of riding the coattails of being in that video. And it was really funny going online and looking him up and finding that he actually owned a coffee shop in Coburg, Ontario for quite a period of time called The Human Bean and sold that in 2010 and is now the the afternoon drive time dj uh northumberland 96.7 <laughs> seriously so yeah so he's still sort of living that life and it's funny because you'll go into stories about rush and about that song and then when you look in the comments almost every single time you'll see david glover or sue glover his wife will say hey my my husband was in that video He'll show up in the mentions. He'll, yeah, it's, wow. it's he, like he shows up personally to say, oh, I was in that video and here's what happened, which is actually super cool. I mean, listen, I, I would do the same thing. I would ride that for the rest of my life. Why not? Right. Um, so he seems like a nice enough guy. I, and I, I think if we, if, if we could ever talk to that guy, that'd be A, oh, fascinating. Absolutely. And B, the, the burning question that I would have is that was the early 80s. The video was 
on its way up. It might have been king at that point, at least in the U.S., MTV would have existed at that point. Uh, much music may not have existed in Canada yet, given the year. But here's a guy that was an outcast in his local high school, and suddenly he's being featured in an internationally successful rock band's video. How did it change his life at the time? Yeah. Did, did people at the high school become more open to him? Did it improve his experience in high school? Or did it alienate him from the people who were now looking at him like, what's so special about this asshole? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, where, yeah. <laughs> one of the comments the for him. Yeah. One of the comments I read where he was discussing, you know, how this was my life. And he actually puts at the end of it, don't worry, kids, it does get better. So maybe, maybe the, the video helped him kind of uh, get away from that. Maybe it didn't, but it would be. And, and honestly, when I saw that he, you know, the first thing I read was that he had this coffee shop. And so I immediately looked up the coffee shop because I thought, let's go. Yeah. Let's go meet Dave because I right. would love to do that. And I'm sure, I'm sure he's been approached a few times before. But uh, yeah, it would be really neat to uh, it, hear. It, if it became such a big part of his life, I'm sure he probably welcomed it. Yeah. If if he's if he's still active online, if he's still looking up instances of that song appearing on wherever YouTube or who knows wherever it's being mentioned or brought up, um, if he's still active and vocal and and continuing a dialogue with other fans, did he consider himself a fan of the band? He never really mentioned that. Interesting. Uh, yeah, he never really mentioned it. I mean, I don't know if you noticed uh, in watching the video, but when he's walking through the halls the number of, of guys coming the other way who have the jean jackets on and they're open and they've got Rush t-shirts on. I did not notice that. Yeah, there's quite a few of them. So right. clearly somebody said, hey, they're going to be filming this. Or maybe it was just a matter of that's what dudes were doing back then. They had their Rush t-shirts on, right? It's a Toronto high school. They were, they yep. were a big band. I consider them our greatest export in terms of music. I, I'm sure that would be contested at every level. It is but not Brian Adams, is what you're it, saying. It is not Brian Adams, <laughs> in my opinion, anyway. It is not um, Anna Muscuri. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's such an amazing slice of growing up in this area. And I will, I think, love it until, until the day I die. So, to wrap up, uh, I think you've already answered sort of the wrap-up question, which is how does this, how does this song hold up? How does it, how does it rank? How does it hold up for you as a modern listener? Uh, you've already said outright that, you know, as of 2019, you were listening to it multiple times in any given week. Yeah, it came up, it, you know, uh, Spotify at the end of the year will give you your, your rewind, the songs that you li listen to the most. Yep. And it'll actually give you stats. And the stats were quite staggering for me. And I mean, I was proud of it, but. <laughs> it may not be so if you're somebody. Do you know likes. the actual? Will it give you the actual I, number of listens in a given will. year? It will. It will, and it was. Do you know what it is? It was pretty crazy. I don't. <laughs> I don't remember the number, but I remember thinking, "Wow, that's a lot." But again, it is my favorite song. And when we discussed picking songs, you know, I did think of some other songs. There's no yep. doubt. Um, we we certainly mentioned uh, my my guess for your first pick. Uh, my guess was The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, which I thought was a slam dunk. I, I started doing research on The Wreck, uh, <laughs> so I would be able to be in the loop for that conversation. Yeah, and um, the anniversary I, of it just, just passed. And Yeah, and the anniversary just passed 40 years? 40 years. Yeah. For some reason, I, I had it in my head that it was a much earlier wreck than, than it actually was. That happened during easily during our lifetime, uh, which is mind-blowing. 
but I that was my natural assumption for your number one because from so many conversations we've had, I know what that song means to you. So I, I just assumed that that would be the natural first pick. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely have to save that for another episode. Now, at the end of the day, when it when when it came to you know what is the the ultimate favorite song for me, it's always going to be Subdivisions by Rush. Yeah, it's a great so, song. It's a great yeah. song and a great album. And and how for you? I mean, you weren't somebody that grew up listening to that type of music. Like, and I introduced you to it much later in life. How does that song hold up for you? Well, just to clarify a little bit, no, I, I wasn't. I wasn't a classic rock radio, or at the time, rock radio listener. So it wasn't something I didn't own. Rush albums when I was growing up. It was always a band that was ever present. However, you lived in Toronto, so like it or not regardless of the station you're listening to, you're going to hear you some Rush. And I always liked the radio hits, always. I'm one of the people, there's, there's a huge, you know, continental divide on Rush, and it seems to focus on or center around, to some degree, Getty's voice. Getty's voice is so polarizing, and there's so many people that can't deal with that voice on, a, on an enjoyment level. They just, they, it just hits their ear wrong in some way. And I was never one of those. I loved his voice. There's a lot of emotion in that voice. It's not just about the upper register. But for some reason, he's got a lot of power. I don't know. The upper register just gives such a huge payoff. And I think it's why so much metal lives in that area. There's so much metal where you get guys like Rob Halford or whomever, where they just live in that upper register. King Diamond, we were talking about not too long ago, where they just live in that upper register because there's just so much power up there and there's just so much emotional intensity. So I always happen to like his vocals. I had just never been interested enough maybe or had the disposable cash to go and look into their back catalog and buy some, some albums. And what it took was when I really think about it, what it took was you dragging me off to not dragging me. Cause I was happy to go with you, but you taking me to see that uh, documentary beyond the lighted stage. Yeah. Uh, we went and saw that. And I found that when all of the rush songs were presented over the course of the narrative, you know, they, the movie really told the story of the band when presented holistically like that, I really felt wow, I, I, I like so much more of their music than I ever thought I would. You know, if you would ask me directly prior to seeing that movie, oh, do you like Rush? I guess, I don't know. You're fine. But listening to them one after the other, you know, it's, it's like walking out of, what was the Queen movie? Bohemian you know, Rhapsody. Bohemian Rhapsody. That movie is not a great biographical movie. It's, I liked it. I enjoyed it. I would recommend it to other people. But the thing almost operated as a marketing tool to sell more Queen music. Yeah. And I came out of that movie, I listened to a lot of Queen back in the day. As much as I said I didn't, you know, I wasn't drawn to, to classic rock, I did listen to a fair bit of Queen, and they were a big part of my childhood. But coming out of that movie, I just thought, well, now i got to dig it all, my Queen. I, I've got to dig all that out because, you know, it was that huge hit in the nostalgia area of the brain, wherever that is. And I thought to myself, i gotta, I got to go and listen to some, some Queen. And I, I came out of that rushed documentary in exactly the same way it, gives the narrative of the band over the course of their career and it's punctuating every pit stop along the way with these great rush songs and i thought yeah now i've got to go and start to look through the the catalog and i appreciate that and and the thing that pissed me off the most was knowing so little about the band as i did other than the fact that they were canadian and they were prog and they were classic rock i, I next to that i i knew very little 
when I discovered 2112, which again, I thought was pronounced 2112, <laughs> <laughs> when discovering that that was a sci-fi epic, and I was like, dude, you know I'm a fan of sci-fi. That's all you needed to say. For years, you could have you could have gotten me in that door so much sooner. You know that's a concept album. A concept album, you say? <laughs> yeah, it's a concept album that's a sci-fi album. I, like, I think I would have exploded. But yeah, I, I, long story short, I love Subdivisions. I always have. It is great song and a great video when I used to catch it on much. And yeah, it's definitely a recommend for me as well. It's definitely a great song choice. And I would, yeah, I love it. And to kind of uh, tack on to your, your talk about his voice and, yeah. and being in the up, this is not a song where he does that. No, it's, it's not a lot of vocal gymnastics. Yeah, yeah. Like you come out of the stuff from the seventies when he was, when he was younger and what some people would describe as shrieking, yeah. which I absolutely love, but that drove yeah. a lot of people away. But this song subdivisions, he doesn't do that. His yeah. voice is, he's very calm. And what's the I one like song, that too. What's the one song we've talked about it. There's the one song that I think is the go-to that you point to for a Getty shrieking song. Wow, there's a few. I mean, Anthem is one that is pretty it's fantastic not, for it's that. It's not Anthem. Uh, some of the early stuff, uh, Finding My Way. And then when you get to 2112, The Temples of Spherinx, mm-hmm. he's, he's pretty up there. Yeah. It's difficult to kind of pinpoint. Uh, circumstances? Is that? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's up there in that song as well, but not nearly as much as some of the stuff. From oh, Blood really? I, I thought that circumstances was a real litmus test of a song because for my, in, in my head, that's one where he really, really shrieks. He does, um, but he's, and he's got I songs where he shrieks even more. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Like the first album with their debut album where John Rutsey was the drummer, those songs, which are songs that were written by Getty and Alex. And they, they will say that they were terrible songwriters, but the songwriting was made up for, in my opinion, with the musicianship and Ged's voice. Yeah. I mean, come on. Like you said, the power and the passion and just, I mean, the youth in his voice there yeah. is so impressive to me. I can't get enough. I, again, I'm describing this and I have goosebumps because it, it's bringing up that emotion for me of like, what a voice. Yeah. And, and all it makes me want to do is listen to the next song. Yep. And it's funny to me, it, it is interesting that their biggest commercial success was Moving Pictures. Yep. And he's not doing a lot of that, you know, shrieking on that on album. On that album, yeah. You know, he does, but it, it may, that may point, that may be indicative of what people enjoyed more about Rush, was Getty kind of toned down a little bit and more of a focus on, on the, the instruments in, instead of him you know, just wailing away. Right. So, I mean, we're talking a lot about Getty, but Alex Lifeson to me is one of the most underrated guitarists in the world. And, yep. and you can't have a rush conversation without mentioning the, the late great Neil Peart, the by far to me, the greatest drummer to ever live again, that would be contested. You know, a lot of people will say John Bonham and it's very close. Buddy uh, Rich would say Buddy Rich. Buddy Rich would definitely say Buddy Rich. Uh, but what, what was so impressive to me was Neil was so incredible in terms of the drumming, but he was also the main lyricist. The lyricist, yeah, that's and, right. And the interesting thing about Subdivisions is 
up to that point, everything was sort of conceptual in his writing. Yeah. This was the first autobiographical song. Yeah. He was writing about his experience. He's a, it has to be said, he's a really, really interesting lyricist. He sure um, is. You know, looking at the lyrics just for this song on paper, I think it's worth doing. I think it's, uh, it's there's some really interesting wordplay in this song. And you, I'm sure have it memorized i do not but there's some interesting wordplay in that song but also as you say they were such a conceptual band over the course of however many albums had preceded this one you know there's a heavy heavy influence on fantasy and on the science fiction that he was reading in his own personal life Uh, and a lot of that comes through and it's interesting there's not a lot of boy meets girl boy loses girl No. songwriting with this band there's there's not a lot of reliance on that and that has its place and there are some amazing songs about boys meeting girls or girls meeting boys or boys meeting boys or what however you know whatever yeah. the relationship is you know there's no end to those but at the same time it's sometimes nice to get songs that are about something else yeah for sure he uh he admittedly said that after writing that song that changed his direction in terms of his writing because he realized that people want real. Yeah. They want honesty in a song. Yeah. And so that, uh, that definitely changed the course of, of his path in terms of his, his lyrics and his writing. And I'm glad it did because you can, you can group rush into, into eras of where they were into certain things. And there's very distinct sort of splits where, they go off and they change things and they go off and change things again. I have issues, as you know, uh, with certain directions that they took, most notably roll the bones with the rap part. Right. But, but again, I look back at it now with nostalgia, like, and you, you otherwise have no problem with rap or hip hop. No, it should be pointed out. No, I don't, you don't have an issue with that on any level. It's just, it, it was a poor fit for the band. It was just bad. Like it was just flat out bad. Right. You know, Neil tried, but, but the rap itself and the, the lyrics themselves are pretty bad. But anyway, that's going off a little bit. I think, I think we should probably wrap this up. And like you said, you seem to love the song. I absolutely love the song. And I hope... So that gets a, a, thumb, a thumbs up from each of us and a recommend, clear, clearly. Absolutely. And I hope it, it opens the doors to somebody that's maybe listening to this and says, hey, I haven't really listened to Rush or I haven't really listened to that song. And it's a potential gateway to somebody yep. discovering some pretty fantastic music. So, Yep, cool. Well, thank you for bringing the song to our attention. Thanks for getting this out there. Hey, thanks for listening. So, okay, great. Until next episode. Uh, the next episode will be a song of my choosing. And uh, the song I've chosen is not my favorite. It's a great song. I happen to love it. And I'm not sure you'll have ever heard it. So this could be a very different textural show just because it's going to be a different dynamic we're not talking about a song that we both love and we're not talking about my favorite song we're just talking about another song that i think is really interesting fantastic i look forward to it great see you then